Hey, deserving listeners. Today, we have an interesting guest on the show. We're going to talk about trauma and evolution and science. And so I just thought we'd just get to the interview. But first, let me introduce the podcast. This is called Psychology in Seattle. And I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. Let's get to the interview. Uh, hi, I'm Mike McCarg. I'm an author and a podcaster specializing in the intersection of science education and emotional awareness, uh, because I think those two things are more powerful when combined uh, than used separately. I'm the host of a show called Ask Science Mike that's been running since, gosh, 2014. And uh, I'm a, a published author a few times over with my new book coming out now called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. So what a wonderful title to the book. What is the book about? It's about the gap between what we want to think and do and feel and say and what we actually think and do and feel and say. I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. If you don't, a really easy example is uh, I'm a person who has had some cardiac health issues. And so maintaining a healthy diet is really important to me. And I understand that. And I absolutely love to eat cookies by the handful. And these two things seem at odds with each other. How do I both want to have a healthier lifestyle and eat a lot of cookies? And that tension is what the whole book is about, but not just about food, about a, a broad look at our behaviors and uh, our feelings. So just diving into that one a little bit, because I'm guessing a lot of people can relate. In your book, what's your process or what's your recommendation for people? Because I'm guessing part of it involves becoming self-aware of one's impulses and behaviors. Uh, but how do you lay it out in your book? Well, I mean, the, the, the tension of the title is the structure of the whole book. So I think too often, even in public health spaces and mental health spaces, uh, we tend to focus on behaviors and feelings that we don't desire as being bad or negative. And I try to reframe the things about us that frustrate us, feelings that we don't enjoy, like sadness, anger, or fear, um, our kind of susceptibility to influence in media and advertising, um, and, uh, and things like compulsive eating and pornography use as being fundamentally good and important for people because they are stemming from mechanisms in our bodies and our brains that were designed to help us survive. And they appeared over the development of life and stuck around because they were successful in helping us survive. So my, my first take on any topic is to look at why this is good. Where is this behavior or this feeling that we're not enjoying? What was its evolutionary impetus for existing? And by taking a more positive look, on the source of something negative or unpleasant in our life, I hope to invite people into a place of self-understanding, self-reflection, ultimately self-acceptance. But we also have to admit that many times, even though we are wondrous creatures, we are all organisms that can trace our lineage back to the first life on Earth, which is really remarkable if you think about it, we also often get in our own ways. We hurt ourselves and we hurt other people. And to address that, I talk about my own experiences with profound failure in recent years and how I, I leaned into 
the best understandings in behavioral economics and interpersonal neurobiology, uh, emotionally focused trauma therapy, and other good models coming from the sciences to lead me into a period of recovery, of growth, and transformation, and invite the reader onto their own journey into a similar process. So in the book, you talk about your own recovery. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Your own recovery from trauma? Yeah, my ongoing recovery from trauma is is a is a major thread in the book, um, and how I basically the genesis for this version of the book came when for the first time in my life I started to experience frequent panic attacks. That's not something that had happened to me before. I knew people who had had panic attacks, and I was empathetic toward them. But I would think ultimately, gosh, how could you have a situation where you can't? get in control of your feelings. I, I thought these poor people just needed to develop more sophisticated tool sets and therapy. And then I started to have severe panic attacks as I entered into middle age and a lot of latent emotions I've been pushing down my whole life as a result of early childhood trauma began to express itself and began to create these kind of uncontrollable moments in my life. You know, I'd be driving, I'd be walking through an airport, or I'd be about to walk on stage, uh, you know, because that, that's part of my job is uh, is events. And I would have these crippling panic attacks, often including dissociative uh, tendencies or dissociative events. And it felt so overwhelming and it felt so scary. And that led me to begin a deeper examination of my relationship with my feelings and also to identify some shortcomings in the approach I'd taken to therapy that far in my life. And uh, as I had to dig deeper and I began to get through this and begin to, you know, get to some functional state in life again, I realized as always, you know, I bet I'm not the only person who has struggled in this way. And so I wanted to write a book to help other people realize that even when we're going to therapy and even when we're trying to do our work to grow, Sometimes there's still a lot under there that we're not in touch with, and uh, and it can it can show up, and then we need a way with support to work through that. Yeah, when I hear stories like that, I think about I don't know when I learned this early in my career, but it, it the perspective that I always think about is our body knows when we're in a safe space to process the next phase of our emotional growth mm -hmm. and that earlier in your life when you were in therapy there was a certain kind of safety that provided you a space to explore what you were exploring at the time and that was probably worthwhile and beneficial and then as time went on you got to a place where your body said okay mike it's time for this uh, i'm gonna start letting this out and alerting you to the part of me that is ready to heal in this way mm -hmm. and it brings it up to the you know to the surface and you have these symptoms and it provokes this response of like okay i better i better enter the next phase of healing i don't know does that resonate with you at all that absolutely resonates you know i'd used talking therapy for most of my adult life i started cognitive behavioral therapy as a teenager and both of those forms of mental health interventions were so useful and so valuable to me. So I don't mean to say that talking therapy or CBT are 
useless. What I mean, as precisely as you've said, as I grew older, and frankly, as I entered into a period of my life where I had intimate relationships with friends that were very supportive, in some way, um, that safety invited, I think, this deeper expression of pain that I'd kept hidden even from myself in life up to that point. And when I tried to use my existing tools and existing strategies that I'd learned in talk therapy and in CBT, I was so so frustrated that they weren't working now. Like, what's going on? I started to think I was losing my grip. And uh, it was in conjunction with a dear friend of mine who's a who's a therapist and a researcher, Dr. Hillary McBride, that I realized that there were different models of therapy that were focused on trauma. And I thought, well, gosh, I've never been to war. I don't have trauma. <laughs> um, and I, I just couldn't understand why anyone would, would talk about trauma to me, who's a, a middle-class white person living in North America. You know, I'd been bullied, sure, but it didn't seem like like a bomb going off near me. Uh, I had, uh, I'm a sexual assault survivor. So I thought maybe, you know, that was, that was difficult, but trauma seemed like a strong word. And, um, Hillary helped me understand that our brains don't use some kind of relative scoring system for trauma. Our brains don't weigh what happened to others in, in terms of how our, they, it encodes memories in our own experiences, anytime our brains think an event is a threat to our survival, it can encode those experiences as trauma in our brains. And often dealing with trauma requires specialized forms of therapy and professional support when compared to more general talking therapy. And I entered into a phase of my life where I tried that kind of therapy. At first, I thought it was confusing and strange because there was a lot less talking and a lot more... (laughs) Uh, awareness and sitting and and focusing on physical sensations and becoming aware of emotion and um, all these techniques that first seemed very strange to me and also frankly at first caused me to feel worse uh, which was not something that I was used to when I would do talking therapy every week I felt what a little bit better uh, but that wasn't my experience with trauma therapy I got much worse before I got better and of course when I say better I mean we're always on an ongoing journey. Uh, I'm not. I'm not stating that I've completely healed or something. Uh, but these different approaches, it was shocking to me how, at different phases of our life, something that had been working stops, and you need to try something new. Well, I'm so happy for you that you found the right therapist for the right developmental stage, shall we say, of of your recovery. That's fantastic. So you're talking about emotional awareness and becoming intimately aware of your body and how emotions manifest. What else did you do with that sort of therapy? Well, we did some EMDR, which at first I thought was just utterly silly, <laughs> both experientially and as someone who um, who studies the brain a lot, as a passionate follower of the sciences. I just thought, there's no way this does anything. Uh, if you're not familiar with EMDR, a, a therapist basically asks you to, or guides you into a particular memory or emotional state, and then asks you to watch a pointer as it moves across your field of vision. Um, and there's some differing theories on what that actually does 
neurobiologically. Um, but the outcome was, in conjunction with a, a more holistic therapeutic program, uh, EMDR and tools like it did help me uh, feel much better over time. And then I also started to devise strategies in my daily living outside of therapy that helped me de-escalate myself in times that I was feeling a panic attack and then also to ground myself and connect with my feelings more often when I was not. So we almost wanted to bring up the feelings in my regular day and bring down the feelings when I was headed into a panic attack, which was a complicated dance that ultimately led to me having to work on matters of compulsive eating and compulsion in the environment, to work on my relationship with social media, uh, to work on my understanding of how different people's triggers and different people's attachment shows up in relationships so I could navigate social situations, and a reordering of the way that I live my life and how I relate to others. So what did you have to do with social media? Was that How, how was that triggering to you? Well, I'm a public figure, um, and so my social media feeds went from being something I really enjoyed as a private person to something that could be very overwhelming as a public person, because if I would post something on social media, I will get hundreds or sometimes thousands of responses, and I would read all of them. And sometimes people would say things that were a necessary correction for something that I would have said. I'd call it genuinely constructive criticism. And I would read that and I would feel such a sense of guilt and shame for hours. And you can imagine at the volume of messages, I would read messages like that often and I would feel guilt and shame for a long time. And then there would be the truly unkind things that people say online simply to hurt and provoke others. And those messages would really hurt me as well. And so what I found was anytime someone was critical of me or outright mean, those were messages I heard that really entered into my emotions and impacted me. While when people would say kind things to me, well, gosh, I just thought those people uh, were flattering me and, and, and insincere. And I came to learn that this was related to my trauma, that as a bullied child, my nervous system couldn't tell the difference between a critical tweet and a playground taunt that hurt me. And I became aware that fundamentally, no matter how much I wanted to be accessible to anyone who wanted to reach me, which by the way, was rooted in codependency, I couldn't be a person who was reading all of these messages and well enough to continue to do the work that I care about in public science communication and public mental health discussions. I had to take a more guarded approach and stop exposing my nervous system to these constant barrage of critical and negative messages. Uh, otherwise, I would continue to kind of spiral into dark and difficult places. And I included that in the book because I think as I look, so many of us, public figures or not, have that kind of relationship with social media. We're social creatures, and it feels good to connect with other people, even online. But so often, because we don't have access to nonverbal cues in these kind of media, we communicate in ways online we would never communicate in person. And in doing so, genuinely hurt each other. 
And so in the book, I talk about ways to curate our relationship with social media in a way that allows us to still get a lot of those benefits in terms of feelings of connection while minimizing some of the dehumanization and hurt that happens as part of those media. Yeah, the thing I always think about is because I get I don't know if I get as many as you do, but I I can definitely relate to what you're talking about. The thing I always think about is and what I try to communicate to people who are commenting is imagine if I were to work three months on a talk, a presentation, a lecture, and a thousand people or 500 people or whatever come to the, you know, the hall for me to talk and I get up in front of people and for an hour I'm working hard and I'm saying all these different things. I'm doing my best to connect with the audience and make it useful and make it worth their time, which by the way is free. It was a, there was no ticket to get into the auditorium. You just had to show up. And then afterwards I, you know, I put down my laser pointer and I say, if anyone wants to come up and chat with me, I'm here to, I'm here to talk. And then, you know, a few people kind of trickle forward and the first person says, and I, you know, let's say I talked about attachment theory or I talked about trauma recovery or something. And the first person someone says is, did you know that your pants are kind of ugly? Uh, but, oh, oh, well, thanks. Okay. Anything else? Nope. That's all. I just wanted to tell you that I don't like your pants. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Next person. Uh, your face looks kind of funny. Oh, Okay. Uh, next person. Did you like anything? No, I just, I just wanted to tell you that your face is kind of stupid. Oh, okay. Next person. Um, when you talked about how your dog w- was really cute, I kind of felt like that was like making cats look bad. And that just kind of pissed me off because, you know, cats are really great too. And you didn't mention cats. Oh, so the whole time I talked about trauma therapy and I mentioned my dog, all you heard was a diss on cats. Yeah. Anything else? No, that's all I have to say. And you're just like, you wouldn't do that. You know, if you're in, if you're in person, people, no one would do that. They wouldn't do, they wouldn't just come up to you and just say that to you. They would say something like, I really like your talk. Um, there was a thing you said about dogs that kind of, I just wanted to have a conversation with, you know, there'd be more politeness in person, Mm -hmm. but somehow online, that's the way people talk to me and you, they'll, they'll just point out these like things where you're thinking, really, you spent all that time listening to me. And that's what, that's the, that's the thing you wanted to say to me, (laughs) you know, now, you know, of course people say nice things of, of course, but it's the negative things that really get under your skin. And I can totally relate. I mean, and I'm curious, what do you do? I mean, do you just not read any of the comments? I don't read comments anymore. I, uh, at all, or, or rarely, um, uh, people who work with me will now read the comments and kind of bring me the things I need to see, which I also understand is not a solution that scales to everyone. <laughs> um, but what I do think we can do and what i talk about in the book is one we understand that it's not only that um these unkind forms of interactions tend to impact us the most it's also that they tend to drive the most interactions and therefore the the unthinking machine brains that run these platforms go wow that statement sure seems to be getting a lot of attention let me display it more prominently so i can sell more ad dollars right (laughs) um and so there's like this double incentive where one, negative messaging impacts people more. And number two, because it impacts people more, 
algorithms and machine learning systems notice this and then fill our feeds with it. And so I recommend several strategies to mitigate this. Number one, I recommend that people start giving their devices quiet hours, put them down for naps, put them down for bedtime, make them sleep longer than you do, and be physically away from the device. Number two, I encourage people to be more intentionally kind in their messaging towards others, to overcorrect for the text-based message of the medium. Uh, And I also recommend that people start turning off as much as they can algorithmically curated presentations of social media feeds. And I encourage people to look more at chronological feeds that just are like the most recent thing is what you see because it starts to de-escalate this machine learning cycle where you see the worst things the most often. Um, And, frankly, to start setting boundaries. You can dictate the terms under which you will be spoken to in online spaces. It is very easy to mute and block people. And I think sometimes that's, that's good and that's necessary and that's right if it allows us to escape a pattern of emotional harm Uh, especially if that pattern of emotional harm conditions us to behave in the same way toward others. Yeah, makes total sense. So I've had panic attacks as well in my life. Not a lot, but earlier in my life it it was a problem, and I worried a lot about having panic attacks in between. And then when I became a clinician and learned about panic attacks, it almost instantly cured me of the panic attack because knowing about a panic attack and having a way to treat others uh, somehow made it so that I knew how to treat myself in the moment as a panic attack was emerging. Um, How are you doing with your panic attacks? Much better now. Um, There's a little complexity for me in that um, I both have PTSD and autism spectrum disorder. So I have um, what we might call meltdowns that aren't panic attacks and that are more difficult to manage. The panic attacks have gotten much better, though, as I've learned strategies to ground myself and cope, although it did take time. There was there was just a while in my life, several months, where I just felt completely out of control and completely overwhelmed by these panic attacks, and I just didn't know if it would ever get better. But Uh, that was grounded in a fundamental inability for me to understand or relate to feelings of sadness and anger. And as I became more comfortable experiencing and expressing those feelings, uh, the panic attacks became more manageable and more controllable. And you talked about how you're a survivor of sexual abuse and also bullying. Uh, I don't want to you know, make you talk about something you don't want to talk about. So feel free to just say, eh, you know, that's that's something that I, I should probably talk about with my therapist or something. But the listeners, a lot of them have been through such experiences themselves. And I don't know what you care to share about those experiences. Well, I was uh, horribly bullied as a child. I um, had very few friends. My friends were only kids that I played with neighbor kids on the street. I didn't have any friends at school until pretty late in middle school and early high school. Um, And so school was a terrifying place for me. Uh, And I experienced cruelty of such 
severity, I'd be reticent to name it on the air for fear of triggering other people, even though I've done a lot of processing around that. And uh, I have uh, experienced sexual assault in my life uh, multiple times. And um, what I came to learn and to understand is based on the way that our brains work and moments where I was so escalated and my brain was encoding trauma, those moments when we feel like time has slowed down, because our brains are here to help our bodies survive, our brains recall those moments in incredible detail, much more than normal everyday experiences. They basically get saved in our brains, a little snapshot of who we were in that moment. And that part of us sits there forever, looking out at our senses and trying to look for a moment when we're in danger like that again so that we can avoid it. It's a survival mechanism. And what I've learned is that that leads to panic attacks. Our nervous system, this little fragment of us from the past says, oh no, I think that thing might be about to happen again. And it triggers our survival system, our fight or flight or faint or freeze system. (laughs) Uh, If you've never heard all four of those, that's for more nuanced understanding of our nervous system. But that doesn't feel good. It doesn't. It doesn't feel helpful to have a panic attack, even though it's our body's way of trying to help us survive. So what I've learned is that we have to become aware. I had to become aware that basically in my brain, there was a neural snapshot of me as a small child who'd been bullied a lot. And basically in my brain, there were snapshots of me at those moments in my life where I'd been a victim of sexual assault. And they were trying to protect me. And by me not setting good boundaries with other people, by me not setting good boundaries with social media, I was inviting people in to frighten those parts of myself that were trying to protect me in the past, and that is where the panic attacks came from. And the only way I could begin to feel more healthy was to begin to make lifestyle changes that allowed those fragments of the past, those those momentary snapshots of myself at earlier points in my life to start to feel safe enough to to stop reaching up from the back seat and trying to grab the wheel to drive me to safety. And uh, I think that's a journey many of us who have experiences like that have to go on. It's not just that we do our work in therapy. Often we have to make significant lifestyle adjustments during and after our period of treatment in order to more effectively manage the symptoms that come with trauma. Yeah, I'm really sorry you went through that. I have learned through my clinical work that bullying can be just as traumatizing as any other uh, classic trauma experience like going to war or being physically abused several times or sexually abused. There's certain traumas that we tend to highlight as very affecting um, and other traumas that seem to be really considered by the general society as like, well, that couldn't possibly rise to the same level as as other kinds of traumas. Mm-hmm. And when you describe it and when I've heard it, when I've worked with many clients on this, it compounds the problem because there's all this self-judgment around like, well, you know, I, I, I wasn't really traumatized. And why am I why am I still fixated on this? Why am I ruminating on this? 
And, you know, you described a little bit of it. It's like you're at school, you you have no friends, you have no allies. Uh, Sometimes even the teachers are not on your side because of one reason or another. And you're just alone in this in this jungle of humans. And then some of the humans are actually out to get you. Mm. And uh, the, the one psychopathic kid or the three sadistic leaning children just put you in the crosshairs and decide, yep, this, this person is disconnected from other people and is easily victimized or more easily victimized because of one reason or another. And, and then it just I just can't imagine every day waking up, going to school and just being like, holy crap, I'm going into the jungle. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be all alone. I have no allies. I have no way of coping. And uh, there's just no safety. Yeah, I just, you know, even if it was just for a week, that would be horrible. But for years, that what many people go through. Um, I've worked with people who went to boarding school and were uh, bullied by a group of kids uh, at boarding school. So you're really away from those who are supposed to be helping you. And, and it, mm. it, it's just a profoundly traumatizing event for people and so isolating, you know, it, it, and so self-esteem shredding because for the child, they're just like, well, there must be something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the other kids mm-hmm. seem to be doing okay. Like, What's wrong with me that I'm getting attacked this way? And mm-hmm. so it really complicates things in a way that, for example, war might not complicate, you know, because war, the traumas are more discreet. You got, you got the enemy and they're, they're trying to get you. Whereas when you're with your classmates, it's like, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm being targeted more than other people just because of, I guess, who I am, you know, and and it, it throws all these different things in there with the trauma of just like worthlessness and um, I deserve it. I must be doing something to provoke them to do it, which is, of course, not true. And and so, yeah, I'm really sorry that you went through that. It's awful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And you, that's so well said and so accurate to what my lived experience was like, That that feeling of, well, if all my peers think I'm fat and stupid I must be fat and stupid and those ideas become so deeply internalized um, that they're really hard to untangle even as an adult yeah and out there if you're a school teacher or administrator or some sort or a parent who is close to something like this or a or a child for that matter you know, let's raise awareness for it because a lot of times it's it's when a child reports it because they usually do at some point. It's like, well, you know, just punch him in the face or stick up for yourself or mm-hmm. just ignore it or tell a teacher or you know these very extremely simplistic solutions that probably have like a one percent chance of working. I mean, there's a slight chance that some of these little uh, suggestions might help, but usually. It's much more systemic than that. And to give such a simplistic solution to kids, and they might even try it, and to have that fail, then the kids realize, oh, I'm really alone. Because I've tried the solution that I was told, and I failed at that too. So mm-hmm. I must really be uh, deserving of all these terrible things. Wow. Um, to diminish it, or just like, well, just 
just ignore it. You know, a lot of parents will say stuff like that. You know, just, you know, you, you don't need them as friends. Well, okay, you know, that might help sometimes, but man, like when you're in the thick of it, like that, that, like you and me, when we get negative comment, you know, we're adults, we, we, we have the resources and we get bullied essentially online sometimes by, you know, a few select people and, uh, you know, you, you might get advice of just like, well, just don't take it to heart. Don't let it get under your skin. Have a thick skin. And I can tell you that I'm um, similar to you, Mike, of, of I, there's sometimes where I just can't, I just can't do that. It, it'll it get in there, you know, especially some of these people. And so mm. I, it has to be more systemic than that for kids. And I, and I don't know exactly the answer, but I know it, it takes a lot more effort than what is typically put into. And um, sometimes it, it means, getting ground level and and really you know looking at the situation and also just listening to the kid of just like okay i'm going to give you this advice but it doesn't work tell me about it because we're i'm going to put my mind to solving this problem with you so you know i'm going to give you five suggestions if none of those work please tell me because i i want to know if this is a deeper problem than these simplistic answers so you know let's let's make this a goal because you don't you deserve to feel safe when you go to school and not be harmed by other people. So I just want to raise awareness for that. Mm, thank you. Thank you. So you talked about evolution. I, I often will talk about evolutionary psychology. What what do you write about in your book regarding evolution? Well, I guess it's kind of the central thesis of this idea that, that we are miracles uh, or personalized to the reader that you are a miracle. Uh, I go, I start with, the genesis of life, the earliest single-celled organisms. And I take people on a tour through evolution where various features in our bodies and our brains appeared and really try to illustrate what the world was like at that time in history. And what we find across the entire arc from the first single-celled organism that appeared to anatomically modern humans, let's call it, 200,000 years ago, just kind of split the difference in what the experts would say. We find that at no point in that entire arc did life look like it looks right now. That somehow we as this very talented and cognitively aware species have created a world unlike any that has existed in the entire history of the earth that we now navigate. And I combine this arc of evolutionary psychology with Nico Tinbergen's theory of supernormal stimulus to show how the world we've created and we control somehow ends up controlling us in return and how that leads so often to us feeling overstimulated, how it leads to us feeling out of control, how it leads us into compulsive behavior patterns around sex and food and eating and our basic needs and uh, and the things we can do to more thoughtfully curate the modern world in a way that doesn't confuse and overwhelm the more ancient parts of our bodies. Yeah, one of the things I always think about when I think about this is that there's there's two main things that we create a or two main aspects of our lives that are often very unnatural, not for everyone, but for many of us. One is, is that we don't spend very much time outside. And mm-hmm. two is that we see way too many strangers. I, I always think about 
what life was probably like 200,000 years ago or even just even just 1,000 years ago for most humans in that you you were born into a small tribe of people, say uh, uh, 50 to 150 people. And by the time you're two years old, you know everyone by name, you know everyone well, uh, you know every new addition to the tribe. Occasionally you bump into strangers as a group. The 150 of you bump into one or two strangers or another you know, group of people. And you all react together. And there's a togetherness. It's a herd of people mm-hmm. that are your herd. And you, you're never without your herd nearby. And the threat of that stranger was real. And there was anxiety and um, you know, aggression would kick in or hypervigilance about what's going on with those people over there. And then the, the two groups would separate. And I don't know how many days or months or years would go by before you'd bump into more strangers. And that, that feeling of warmth and safety and predictability and familiarity with people that are close to you must have been quite uh, nice and just that's how we evolved. And yet today I was, you know, when I work downtown Seattle, I commute down there and, um, or I'll go to the movie theater or the mall or something. And I just think about in a typical day, sometimes I might see my wife for an hour maybe a maybe 15 minutes on you know for both working a lot and the rest of the day all i'm seeing are strangers or people i barely know mm. and i just can't imagine what uh mechanisms in my brain that were very useful to me 200,000 years ago are in this constant state of like holy shit who's that person you don't know what they're going to do are they going to stab you are they going to kill you are they going to take your resources or you don't turn your back on that person. Don't uh, you? Don't say the wrong thing because you don't know what they're going to do. Oh, you just said that thing. You don't know how they're going to process it. You, you can't really trust how they see you because you haven't had enough experience with them, and maybe you've even had some bad experiences with them. And the bodily experience of that has got to take a toll, and like you said, results in compulsive, self-soothing behaviors like eating or drinking or other kinds of things. Uh, so absolutely. I don't know the solution to that, honestly. Maybe this quarantine will actually help us realize a little bit of that, of like, mm-hmm. hey, you know what? I have, in some ways, less anxiety. And some people will say that strangely. Of course, there's a lot of anxiety because of all the horror and the terror. But mm-hmm. but there is uh, some element of like, well, it's kind of nice not bumping into all those strangers like I used to, like I used to do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then of course, nature, um, the, the fact that we're always in these, um, you know, temperature controlled air conditioned coffins all the time. <laughs> and we don't, and there's clear evidence when you actually study well being and other kinds of things, the benefits of being in nature and being outside. And, um, so I don't know, those are the two things that I think about. Um, I don't know. I'm just rambling at this point. Any thoughts on that, Mike? <laughs> that was a tremendous ramble. <laughs> I so enjoyed it, um, especially that notion that, yeah, our brains expect us to see like 
based on our understanding of neurobiology, maybe 75 to 150 different other people that are our troop or tribe. I mean, depending on what period of human development we're talking about, I think we could shift between those terms. And now we walk around and towering unnatural structures surrounded by strangers all the time and bombarded with bright images of smiling faces telling us to do things that uh, different layers of our brain respond to and we have these self-soothing behaviors of which of course to kind of go back in our conversation a little if i'm surrounded by strangers and i put a slate of glass in my pocket that can show me messages from people i actually know why wouldn't i do that during my commute why wouldn't i do that sitting on a bench or in a doctor's office when i feel lonely and uncomfortable and this this confluence of factors absolutely uh impacts our lives and impacts our mental health profoundly and you know my goal in putting this book out was to have people to one be aware of that yes and number two is to understand that uh, we aren't actually helpless against these factors. We have tremendous agency when we're aware of the underlying issue. We have the ability to have a more thoughtful relationship with our anxiety and the feelings that create anxiety and to channel that anxiety into more healthy ways. We have the ability to dictate to the machines that control what we see in our media, the Netflixes, the Facebooks, the YouTubes. We actually can push back and say, no, I only want to be shown these things in these ways. We can more thoughtfully employ language. We can be aware that other people are anxious and have trauma too. Uh, And we can ultimately, hopefully, begin to be intentional about crafting a better life. The last chapter in my book, is called Tilling Better Soil. And it's literally about what I learned being on a basically forced rest after a cardiac event that hospitalized me. And the things I learned from spending more time at home, spending more time in nature, and uh, being alone more often. And the ways that taught me to uh, shift and curate my life experience to both be more, more patient with myself and others and structure my life in such a way where I have moments to opt out of the kind of manufactured society we live in and create those opportunities for my body to be in an environment that feels more natural and more normal compared to what my body evolved to expect. Right. Becoming aware of our emotional state is critical to all that. And it sounds like you spent a lot of time doing that. And then also thinking about, of course, evolution. And what one thing that I think about is that I do for my life is there's a we're going through the pandemic right now, and there's this a compulsion for some people to consume more media about the coronavirus or something, to read more news articles, to read more you know reaction pieces or, or something, which makes sense, right? When we we evolved and other animals we can observe this in them as well when there's a a a crunch on a stick in the woods to our left we are evolve we evolve to like look is that a tiger it's about to kill us when we 
hear a a galloping footstep coming towards us you know it's you can't really focus on anything else you you, all of your focus wants to look and see is is that danger coming what am i going to be killed Mm -hmm. and so when there are signals of danger we evolve to pay attention the difference is is that two hundred thousand years ago there wasn't news media that was perfectly designed to trigger that response in us to make us pay attention there was a, a regularity on average to the stimulus that would provoke that fight or flight, freeze or appease res- response. And uh, uh, and it would only happen every now and then. Whereas today, if you let it happen, you could be triggered on a second by second basis, which of course causes more anxiety, which causes more hypervigilance, which causes more of the behavior to look at the news and to pay attention. And now I'm not saying that's dysfunctional because it, it might be fine, but if you're aware of your emotional state and your needs, then you can monitor that and say, oh, uh, I think I'm ramping myself up here. And I think there's a there's a diminishing return of reading 20 articles on the coronavirus or the, you know, the war in the Middle East or whatever it is that, you know, is, is the thing of the day. And I need to pull back on that. There's there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with being being informed, but there is something uh, detrimental to me overall, to my well-being, to um, and because now I have to drink more at night to cope, or I have to eat five cookies instead of one to to cope. And uh, I'm a, but I, it's all because I'm aware of my body, and I'm also aware of the evolution of the fact that I've evolved to pay attention to danger. And so I'm going to evaluate my lifestyle here. And like you said, um, that might lead to I'm going to put my phone down for eight hours a day. <laughs> Because even though I have this compulsion to look because it feels important, on the other hand, overall, it, it actually really is detrimental to me and causes me to downward spiral in all sorts of ways. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it sounds like your book is is a good one to, to read to help people to evaluate those those patterns and understand themselves, understand their emotions, understand the evolutionary basis of it to help them to think about the sorts of stresses that are of today, um, you know, social media and and um, news and strangers and not being in nature. Uh, that that's really great. I like I like to hear. So so give us give us the name of that book again, please. It's called "You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass." You're a miracle and a pain in the ass. And what's the name of your podcast again? Ask Science Mike. And what sort of things you talk about uh on the podcast well ask science mike is a show where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response so every week i just take questions that have been submitted by the public research them and answer them to the best of my ability so we talk about everything it's a completely audience driven show things like you know why are how does gravity work to how does evolution work? All that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, so we we do general science questions. That's actually the genesis of this of the show and where it began. Uh, but we also talk about where like science interacts uh, with people's lives. So uh, you know, just this week, people asked, you know, I'm a, a night owl and my husband's a morning lark, and we've been married three months, and that's causing problems. What can we do? Uh, another person asked, is there a way we can address the whiteness problem in geoscience? Why is geoscience such a, a 
homogenous terms in terms of uh, racial makeup and people who practice it. And um, people ask, uh, you know, I've got young daughters and I'm just becoming aware of what a problem rape culture is in our society. Is there anything in the sciences that can tell me the best way to talk to my children about patriarchy and the way women are treated? That's just one snapshot of one week's show every single week. We take four completely different questions and we respond to them sincerely and honestly. Wow. Sounds like a fantastic podcast. I, I, I'm going to try to check it out. <laughs> it's a ton of fun. I've been, you know, I'm episodes in the 200s now and it's just as fun as it was the first day. That's great. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Mike. Uh, I hope that all the listeners out there will buy your book and check out your podcast and think about their own emotional state and you know this this book and your effort is really a altruistic thing and um, making a potential positive difference in the world and really helping people and also your humility to you know provide your own story and self-disclose that's great as well thank you it was so good to talk with you today i really enjoyed it and everyone out there please take care of yourself mike why should people take care of themselves and other people because uh, our species uniquely can make this world different. And when we take care of ourselves and take care of each other, we have the power to make the world better.